Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And I'm joined this week uh, by a member of the faculty from the University of Texas at San Antonio. We're going to be talking uh, about the Catalyst Lab program and uh, cloud computing and all sorts of interesting things going on there at the university. If you're going to be able to stick with us uh, in your car listening to us on 1200 AM, uh, that's great. If you're going to be hopping out of your automobile, uh, you can stream 1200 AM radio uh, via iHeartRadio on your iPhone, Android device, or uh, via your web browser on your computer. If you uh, are not going to be able to stick with us for this next uh, hour, then uh, you can listen to the rebroadcast of this uh, up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com. It'll go up on Tuesday, July the 23rd, uh, along with uh, all the rest of our uh, past broadcasts, uh, other episodes uh, where we've had uh, other members of the faculty on from UTSA, uh, other area universities talking about all of the cybersecurity, cloud computing, and uh, uh, great internship opportunities and things going on here uh, as we grow and build uh, the tech ecosystem in the San Antonio area. So, uh, Dr. Prevost, uh, Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Brett. My pleasure to be here. Yeah. So one of the, the things that uh, was we our audience goes kind of all the way up from a lot of the, the kids doing Cyber Patriot in our middle schools and high schools on up to the, their parents uh, checking the program out. I always like to share with them, how did you, you get to where you're at? What was your journey to becoming a, a faculty member and, and kind of um, getting into all this cloud computing stuff? Well, my journey began back at... A&M, um, where I studied electrical engineering, and upon leaving, I, as all students do, needed to uh, find a uh, place where I could call home. Um, I was fortunate to meet a, uh, a person who I think San Antonio is pretty familiar with, a man by the name of Graham Weston, yes. and Graham hired me. Um, um, whether he should or should not have is a whole nother debate, but he did, and he gave me an opportunity to prove myself. I rose to director of um, information systems, which is kind of a different path for an electrical engineer to take. But yeah, in, in, not a in, lot of chips inside of information systems. Well, they're further on down. In, in all fairness, the logic and the beauty of coding always appealed to me. So the same fundamental practices that we use to design chips, we use to build software. I mean, it's really just a different medium. And so it, it became a natural way for me to express what I did in college, except on a very visceral level. So I could affect the happenings of a, of a company and affect what Graham needed to have happen immediately. And so that led me to a 20-year career here in San Antonio. Um, I've worked for various companies. Um, I worked for a company that did software for the insurance industry that did biomechanical analysis of auto accidents. And so we use expert rule systems, web-based, and provided a portal for an insurance um, agent to be able to very easily determine the forces and therefore the injuries that were possible on auto accident victims. And so that really culminated in an awareness that the the thing that made me the happiest was when I could work with people and when I could work with especially um, new people, younger engineers or software developers, and help them mature in their process. It was not a long leap from there to realize that what I needed to do is I needed to move into a formal academic setting. And so I went back to UTSA late in my career I received my PhD in electrical engineering and made the transformation into academia and haven't looked back since. Yeah, so that's, uh, 
uh, I would say for for your your faculty peers, that's uh, not a traditional route. If you go back the the last fifty years, maybe of, of professors, but uh, it seems to be more of a, a trend happening now. I, I meet a lot of folks that are are I think both of our general ages uh, that are looking at getting involved in teaching and building and, and developing the next generation of folks that are, are going to uh, be able to go on and do great things uh, in maybe a career that could last a hundred years. Well, that was the other realization is that that the software development world doesn't tend to reward gray hairs as much as 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 other professions do. And um, when I looked at my uh, faculty uh, teachers at UTSA and saw lots of gray hair, I figured this is the right spot for me because I could probably last a while here. Yeah, yeah, you can do definitely the, the second career. So as, as uh, you've been now with the, the university uh, for how long? Um, five years total. Um, I started off as a research professor, and which is basically a professor that's not on a tenure track role. And then um, a Two years into that, I switched over and, and, and took the plunge and, and actually became a tenure-track uh, assistant professor with the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering. At the university, so you're, you're working in the, the College of Engineering, but then you also work with the Open Cloud Institute. Uh, that's correct. Um, one of the things that, that I've been able to enjoy over the years is a, um, a, a close relationship with, with Graham and, and his efforts. Um, obviously... Uh, while he was at Rackspace, the focus on cloud computing was strong. And one of the things that he always envisioned was really creating an ecosystem here in San Antonio where we would have um, not just a single company like a Rackspace, but an entire ecosystem of companies that had um, a strong uh, uh, base of talent that they could pull from in these technical areas, such as in cloud computing, um, but all of its related technologies as well. So Graham encouraged me and a, uh, a partner of mine, Dr. Paul Rad at UTSA, to work on creating a, a, a framework that UTSA can use to help build that talent base for this region and beyond. Um, that effort led to the creation of the Open Cloud Institute in around 2015. Um, as, as he is often uh, wanting to do, he does not tend to be the single leader in an area. He wants to build a grassroots effort around his, his, the, the match that he lights. And so he did that exceedingly well with what we started. Uh, we had Facebook, we had AMD, we had Cisco, um, plus many other local philanthropic organizations around San Antonio donate money to the tune of around $10 million. And so we started OCI again in uh, 2015, and now we have grown to 26 faculty member. We've sponsored over 150 students, both at the undergraduate and graduate level through our programs and our research activities. Um, we've published papers, we have created workshops, we have taught local businessmen here about cloud and security techniques. The effort goes on and on. Yeah. So uh, and so through that Open Cloud Institute, this is uh, available to UTSA students to at undergraduate, graduate level to get a certificate in cloud computing? Or what, what, what kind of does the opportunities out there for the, the, the kids or maybe adults, depending on when they decided to go back for those degrees? 
Yeah, no, great point. The, the, the nature of OCI is really to promote research and education, not only for UTSA, but for this local community as well. So we are looked on as thought leaders in areas that relate to cloud computing, which in today's world, I mean, is what everything. doesn't, right? Yeah. I mean, everything somehow touches the cloud. So we do look at it as a broad swath that we get to, uh, to play in. Um, how it relates to people, though, is students, whether they're a graduate or undergraduate, are sponsored to do research. And so we team students up with faculty members, and then we help fund that process. So we'll either pay for PhD students or pay for undergraduate students to work on projects that relate to these technologies. Um, the Cloud Computing Graduate Certificate is a subset of OCI, so OCI sponsors that graduate program, makes it available for students across the university. Um, it is a multidisciplinary approach to giving students at the graduate level access to the latest cloud computing um, teaching and research. So it's a four-course series. The last course in the series is a capstone course where we encourage it to be fulfilled as an internship. So we're looking for ways in which we can engage the local community to take our graduate students and then give them that opportunity for actual project experience where they can showcase their skills in a demonstrable way. Um, but that, that leads to a a certificate add-on to their transcript that says that they have completed the requirements for, of the graduate certificate in cloud computing. Yeah, so to me that, that sounds like a, a minor, like if a, coming from a non-academic person, it's like you've got a 12, you have four, four classes, a 12 unit uh, credit hour program, but it's not officially one and there's some, I'm sure, academic reason why it's not a minor in cloud computing. Well, I don't think minors are offered at the graduate the level. level. Okay, yeah. so that's so, why that is. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense, yes. Uh, I've learned now the host has learned something new here again. Yeah, you can't do a, a graduate minor that but, doesn't exist. But but let me just just kind of um, go in on this one point. The 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 process of certificates is also a relatively lower bar to create than other programs at the university, um, yeah. especially accredited. Trying to go into an accredited program like the College of Engineering has with ABET. It's, it, it takes more time and effort to introduce and change curriculum. Um, a certificate program, especially at the graduate level, is, is, is easy. Yeah, and, it allows you to be out there on the cutting edge. And that's the point. And so I think what you're going to see come up here lately is you're going to see many, many more programs that are even considered stackable, where pieces of the program of a certificate can actually overlap in other certificates where you can in in 12 hours gain more than a certificate you might be able to use those same courses to gain multiple certificates so the stackable approach to the certificates not only that but different degree plans i know our college of business has has already launched an effort where they're engaging the local community directly in being able to come back and get online um, degrees directly um, through the university our college the college of engineering is also looking at ways in which we can create professional programs where you don't necessarily have to have the full um, engineering background at the undergraduate level to get an engineering master's degree through our college, uh, something that would directly impact and benefit the professional community in and around San Antonio. Yeah. Yeah, so that 
masters of computer science for non-engineering majors or those sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I guess that's probably in the College of Science, not the College of Engineering. That, that one Universities would be. Universities are big. Right, yes. right. Yeah. yeah, we would probably do the masters of computer, computer engineering. engineering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and so, as, as you were talking on OCI there, as you finish up these certificates, uh, you, you mentioned capstone, you mentioned internship. So, uh, I mean, that leads us into a little bit of what we were talking about before we, we uh, hopped on the air. The, the Catalyst Lab, is that how this all kind of came about? Yes and no. The, the, the nature of Catalyst Lab um, started with the need to give our uh, A student that I had a, an internship opportunity here in San Antonio. Um, you know, again, being part of this local community and, and, and being part of the, 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 the tech ecosystem here in San Antonio, I was able to reach out to someone that I knew and uh, they happened to be part of the 8020 Foundation and asked this person if they knew of a place where I could I could have uh, one of my graduate students work over the summer as an intern. Well, they reached out and pretty quickly came back and said, absolutely, we've we found a spot. Um, send the resume, send the CV, let's see what happens. The short of it is they received the internship. And that the success of that created a need that we realized where we've got a huge talent pool of people at the university especially at the, at the graduate level. I mean, um, not to diminish our undergraduate capabilities, but these students at the graduate level have completed an undergrad and are almost ready to complete their, their graduate degree and are looking to prove their capabilities. So what we did was we created a formal program called the Catalyst Lab in which the 8020 Foundation offsets the cost of taking our graduate intern and placing them with a startup company here in San Antonio. So they're at the present, they're offsetting 50% of the cost of the internship. The local company gets the benefit of a graduate student that's already been trained in a technical area that they got to choose from. So if they want a machine learning expert, that's what we're going to provide them. If they want a robotics expert, that's what we're going to provide them, et cetera. And so the summer program gives the student the opportunity to work for the company and get credit for that graduate certificate capstone um, class. So they not only gain the experience, the companies are getting a graduate student at half price and we end up having more numbers for OCI to show our, our ability to, to promote change in and around San Antonio. So it is a win on all fronts. Yeah, so uh, for those that listen to the program on a regular basis, this is the, the graduate level equivalent of the Students and Startup program, which is if you're a UTSA student and you're listening right now at, a, at the undergrad level and going, well, what's Students and Startups? It's a program available uh, to you at, at UTSA and uh, now, uh, starting this summer, we actually have a, a couple of interns at my company from UTSA here uh, with us this year, and uh, you can you'll do a ten week internship uh, with a tech startup in the San Antonio area. So check out um, students and startups. Listen to our uh, replay and rebroadcast of that, where we had uh, Dr. Martinez on from Trinity, who. Um, led and started that students and startups program to create the undergrad internship opportunities and uh here now is as you you continue on you could go into that graduate degree program at utsa and then uh via catalyst lab uh, get an internship again up at your your college level and 8020 foundation sponsors uh, both of those programs so i'd like to say a little bit of a thanks and shout out to to them for uh, really helping connect um, the academia and industry together because those that flywheel really um 
can change a an ecosystem in a powerful way. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is CyberTalk Radio, and uh, we've been discussing some programs at UTSA uh, related to cloud computing, uh, internships, and uh, other things going on. If you want to listen to uh, everything we, we said to open the program, uh, you can check out our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, July the 23rd. This will uh, go up there and uh, be on the internet uh via that website or uh, all the podcasting services. If you have a favorite podcasting service where you do not see CyberTalk Radio listed, uh, then reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, let us know. We will fix that, and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt. And uh, yes, for any of uh, the students there at UTSA listening, if you want to set up your own podcast service in order to get a free t-shirt, you can do that, and you might be able to do that on some of those uh, Kubernetes containers in the the open cloud. Uh, who knows? So uh, we've uh, also uh, had on... Uh, a couple of uh, other faculty members I mentioned uh, to open the program. So if you're interested in all things ab- about UTSA and kind of the cloud computing, cybersecurity, and the tech ecosystem integration here in the San Antonio community, uh, we've had on uh, the program uh, Dr. Nicole Beebe, uh, and as well, uh, Dr. Greg White. Uh, so check out uh, our website and the archives there. Uh, lots of, of great things going on um, at the University of Texas San Antonio. And uh, while we, we haven't specifically had anybody on the program from the 8020 Foundation, uh, uh, Jeff had mentioned during the, the program here that they helped uh, get the Open Cloud Institute going. Uh, they also, uh, 8020 Foundation, uh, provided a grant to the university to uh, help uh, get the, the College of Data Science uh, started. And I'd like to uh, thank the 8020 Foundation uh, for uh, that donation. Uh, if you just Google or pick your favorite search engine and, and uh, College of Data Science UTSA, uh, you'll see some great news articles about that. I think it was a $15 million grant. I think you're right. Yeah, so um, that's uh, uh, great. And, I mean, that's going to be um, in the, the downtown uh, campus expansion. You guys had to uh, – uh, kind of have to figure out how this is all going to work is that both of these campuses keep growing. Uh, the university is going to maybe just keep building stuff all the way up because you've got things in the medical center area already with the, 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 the uh, medical school. Uh, so maybe just that whole I-10 corridor will just become the giant UTSA campus. Just merge downtown yeah. to a north side. Yeah, it's yeah. a great idea. I like it. <laughs> Keep growing. Well, I mean, if I guess if you add another 20,000 students uh, like UT Austin has, maybe you will fill that whole area up. Yeah, I, although I, I I love my easy commute across campus right now, and you yeah. know, the, the, the track might be a challenge, but... Um, it's a great idea. Yeah. So is, uh, there's a big new engineering building being built on campus. Is that your college? Uh, it's a it's a combination. So the College of Science and the College of Engineering are the two primary uh, users of that new building. Um, the, what we're super excited for, since you brought it up, yes. is the new makerspace that's actually going to be in that building. Um, uh, our, our dean, uh, Dean Browning, uh, was really instrumental in creating this idea for having a multidisciplinary space for all of our engineering students to be able to work cooperatively across their areas. So what a concept, right? Having yeah, that worked okay at Bell Labs. It did. Yeah. It did. It's, it's actually been a model that's, that's shown to be very beneficial. So we're now, we're, 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 we're full in. And, and I think our students are going to be the, the biggest, you know, benefactor of this. They're our double E students can work side by side with the ME students that can work with the civil students and the biomed students, and who knows what's going to come out of that. That's that's just exciting stuff. 
Yeah, no, I mean, because all of this comes together. You talk about something like robotics, it has mechanical engineering, it has electrical engineering, it has uh, computer engineering. There's all sorts of things going into a, a robot, and if those uh, everyone's working on these things separately um, and trying to – you don't have anyone that's an expert in – if you were the expert in the, the biomechanical side of things so you can figure out how to make an arm, uh, but you don't know the strength of the servos, the size of the chips, or all the rest of this stuff, you're going to end up with a r- really odd robot, but – get everybody together and great things could happen. Well, and, and this is the way it's actually done, right? I mean, industry solved that problem quite a long time ago by yeah. having multidisciplinary yeah, we hire teams. cross-functional teams. Absolutely. So, you know, now we're going to train cross, cross-functionally. So Yeah. So when, when does that new building open up? Uh, I know you're not the, the, the construction schedule folks, but no, um, not this fall. I don't believe this fall. Okay. Yeah, I don't believe this fall. Um, and I, I say that um, having been on campus recently, um, up there at a, the building next door. It, it's going to be within one or two years, I'm okay. sure. Um, yeah. I, I don't know the current schedule for it, but I watch it get built every day. I walk by it, you know, on my way to whatever yeah. I'm doing on the campus. Yeah, that's an impressive new facility. It's it's neat. It's really neat. Yeah, and it's us actually one of the things that it's really helped us do is you know the College of Engineering has just recently started a new um, chemical engineering program, and that's where the bulk of the labs for the chemical engineering program are now housed. So. Uh, it's no longer a program in name only. They have real facilities that they're going to be using out of that. So um, just great news for the campus at large. Yeah. So I'm going to, as we uh, get ready to head into our, our bottom of the hour break here, I'm going to circle back a little bit on the Open Cloud Institute and some of the, the areas we were talking about um, before we went on the air. So it started off as a, an OpenStack-based uh, cloud um, initially, and if that's not the case, you could tell me. Um, and, and now, as uh, we were talking, you've evolved forward into Kubernetes. So can you give a, a just a couple of minutes here as we head into this break, a kind of overview of that five years of, of OpenCloud, then maybe we'll talk in some more depth about that in the second half of the program. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the evolution of cloud has been a... Um, you know, process over over the the from the birth of the cloud through where we are today, um, we've seen many different forms take shape. Where people on day one were very keen on having their servers owned by themselves and having their data managed by themselves. And once the cloud became a popular computing um, paradigm, it became pretty pretty easy to sell the concept of you know focus on what you do well and let other people manage all of the back-end infrastructure, which is what created the cloud. So that's those were our starting topics at UTSA. We're going to create an OpenStack implementation here on the campus. Don't worry about it. If you're a researcher, um, we're going to help you use the cloud in a way that impacts your research in meaningful ways, just like the cloud does for industry. And so we really just adapted those same those same talking points that that um, a company like Amazon or a company like Rackspace would tell um, their customer base as to why it's better to host here versus to self-host. Um, that was not a hard sell because the campus research community is focused on what they know and really don't need nor want to be gaining knowledge that doesn't directly impact their core competency. So if you're a biologist, be a biologist. Don't be a computer scientist and a biologist, unless you want to go into bioinformatics, which is completely cool. That's great, yeah. But the point is that what we really are trying to do is help the research community 
use the latest technologies as the latest te technologies are, are, are being pushed out. So the evolution of cloud from private into public into hybrid has been a process that we followed. So whether we give access to the cloud that's directly hosted at UTSA or we help the researcher gain access to the NSF's public cloud, Chameleon, which is jointly managed by University of Chicago and UT Austin at the Texas Advanced Computing Center, we help the faculty researcher engage wherever they need to engage. So if it's, if it's our cloud, great. If it's public cloud, great. If they just want to completely go public and stay on Google or Azure or AWS, that's fine as well. So we've really taken a broader view of enabling our research community with cloud, whatever that means. Well, um, you can't be in this world today and not be exposed to the concept of a containerized application. I'm going to interrupt Jeff here for one quick moment uh, so we can take a break at the bottom of the hour for a news, traffic, and weather update. We will be right back where we'll continue talking about uh, Kubernetes containers and the Catalyst Lab uh, internship program for graduate students. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Prevost uh, from the University of Texas, San Antonio. Uh, if you uh, just hopped in your car here after uh, that news traffic and weather update, uh, thank you for uh, joining us on 1200 WAI. Uh, you can listen to the start of our conversation, which uh, covered a little bit of his background and uh, some things about Catalyst Lab and other uh, initiatives he's working on uh, at the university. It'll go up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, July the 23rd. It'll also go out across the internet on all of the podcasting services. And if you really would like to see a, a still picture of Jeff and I on YouTube, we don't do video there, but there will be a photo of us you can look at and you can just imagine our lips moving. Maybe we can get one of your like image machine learning students to actually just make our lips move as to to the talking of the feels like we could train an ML thing to just... I think we could do that, yeah. yeah. I've got a student in mind that would love to animate me somehow like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this this could be a, an internship coming. Uh, internship for CyberTalk Radio. We're going to animate the lips of all the guests on our photos for the YouTube video. With the way YouTube works, that could actually end up with a cult following. Yes. So um, we were, we're when we went into that break, we were talking about the Open Cloud uh, Institute and uh, some of the, the changes there. So... Um, you were uh, just getting to the kind of uh, going through the Kubernetes and other pieces of of that cloud um, and how that um, has changed over the last five years out into resources in public clouds and other areas. One of the, the items I wanted to uh, drill in a little bit more there about is how does open source and academic research work together? Like, is that good? Is it create challenges? Uh, how does open source and, and academia uh, interact? Oh, I think those are natural fits. I mean, we've really focused on the open source version of the components that we use to the degree we can. Um, uh, one of the things that we're always wanting to be able to do as a result of our research is publish it. And so when we use an open source toolkit, um, usually there is an open source license that's part of it. Um, we make sure that if we're gonna modify and extend, that we follow the license structure, um, but that works really well with academia. So it's, it's important, I think, especially from the engineering perspective, that we understand how things work. 
And so it's one thing to go to Azure or AWS uh, or even Google Cloud and leverage state-of-the-art services that they've made available. Um, but that doesn't necessarily show a student that's needing to understand the processes under the covers, how they've actually constructed what they're giving you as a service. If we use the same type of a service structure but in an open source model, we can peer under the covers and we can actually look at the mechanics of how things are put together. And I think in the end, this gives a, 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 an engineering student, a computer science student, a cybersecurity student, um, far more actionable knowledge that they can use to extend and make things bigger and better in the future. On the hardware side of things, we, we have open compute. Now they're all the way down to where I guess there's an open BIOS, there's an open uh, risk processor design. Um, is, is how is, is, are you guys looking at that in the, the computer engineering and electrical engineering areas? Well, funny you mentioned open compute. Uh, UTSA was the community's compliance and interoperability testing center for open compute um, in its beginning. So uh, ETRI in Taiwan and UTSA were the only two certification centers worldwide for the open compute hardware stack that was coming out. Um, as you mentioned, Facebook starts the process by kind of peeling back the curtain of what they do and yeah. showing the world uh, this is the, the, our best practice that we've evolved over the years that we've been building you know, data centers, racks, servers, mezzanine cards, and the appliances inside the actual server. And, and, and what shouldn't be inside the server, by the way. Yeah. And so what, what they needed, though, is they needed to have an unbiased facility that could actually vet new hardware designs and make sure that they were compliant with the industry objectives. And so the open compute ecosystem used UTSA for uh, a number of years early on as that, that validation. So what was really cool from our perspective is that we would get a state-of-the-art SDN switch and we would certify it. We would go through all of the formal um, certification practices and then in the end we'd keep it. And so it became part of our physical inventory that we could then use uh, to provide those services back to our local community at UTSA. And so we were receiving Facebook racks by the truckload. Um, as a matter of fact, we ended up with a warehouse full of Facebook racks just because we didn't have data center space to actually turn them on. Um, but we still actually today, a lot of the OCI equipment is still running on Facebook's open compute compliant hardware. Um, I have those servers running in my lab right now in, um, in conjunction with Dell PowerEd servers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've been, we've been part of that ecosystem for a long time. Um, how does it work? Well, I mean, the point is, again, I don't look at it really much different than the open source software model, where now what we get to do from a hardware perspective is actually see the Gerber files. We can actually load and, and view what the designs are if we, if we want to keep the design, we keep the design. But if it gives us ideas on what to build next, all the better. And, and again, as long as we follow the licensing models of the individual, the authors of the files, then, then everyone, is, everyone wins. Yeah. So uh, as, as I think back to when I did this, we, we used to call it embedded programming. And you would try to put small source code on a small chip, a Motorola 
probably a HC11 kind of chip back when I did things. Uh, and and you would embed that into what now like they're they're calling all these uh, Internet of Things devices because on somewhere on that chip is also a network connection nowadays. Um, there was not a network connection back then. The, those chips that I used had a, a, a serial interface coming off of it. That's not the cereal you eat for breakfast, kids. S E R I A L. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't even think. I guess the last time I had a computer with a serial port on it now, um, but that was the interface coming off of those those chips I used. And now. Um, like with this, the open hardware, like all the way down to those, the risk chip design, I guess it gives you, you, you the ability to do a full bottoms up design for, for IOT devices in an academic setting. Absolutely. Um, that's been the beauty of being able to go in and actually take advantage of the, the years of evolution of the hardware models that have been built up. Um, as, as, computer science took advantage of and as, as industry takes advantage of all the time, what we try to do though is we try to layer our solutions on best practices. Yeah. So as we find a component design model, um, I mean that's that's been ARM's entire model in their entire ecosystem is there it's a modular design where, you know, don't go about build a better memory management module, just use the component off the shelf and yeah. then add your delta on top of it. And so what we've really been trying to do is not redesign everything down to the communications level. Um, if there's a, a functional, low-powered model that, or a protocol that meets our requirements, that's what we use. And so what we're really trying to do is, is get the students to work not only at understanding the low end of the stack, but how do you construct the modules of what exists to build functional things more rapidly today. So. Uh, even though a lot of that is available, and there are definitely folks in the university that want to focus on that, all the way down to the silicon. Um, yeah. You know, we have um, um, we have one of our faculty members came from Apple, and he's a MEMS guy, and so he is really focusing down. Um, he's got an actual functional MEMS lab in our downtown campus. I mean, it's pretty state of the art. Um, one day you got to go over and take a look at that. Yeah. But um, but he's he's really keen on doing things like that of of building new things in silicon um, that can, you know, increase and 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 perform in ways that are not done today. Um, a lot of a lot of it involves quantum, and so yeah. yeah, um, yeah you're you're sneaking into where we were going to head next. I, I mean, this I, is I all know. conventional computing stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and so I was we were talking during that news traffic and weather update. Um, you're working on some quantum curriculum that you're going to be developing here coming this next spring well i mean i think it's not a a uh, uh, a leap to say that the future of computing is going to be in the quantum realm um uh certainly the downside to not being able to play in that space when other people can play in that space is not going to be good and yeah. so i think as a bet uh, what what I personally am doing as a as faculty at UTSA is I'm making sure that the curriculum that we're teaching our students in the College of Engineering is evolving to keep pace with what's happening out in industry and in other academic areas uh, with the state of the art quantum informatics that's happening right now. Um, I'm not building quantum computers. That's not my area. Uh, yeah, the quantum hardware engineering, not. Not, not, not me personally. Um, but what I really want to focus on is I want to be able to implement and teach quantum algorithms. Yeah. And so I want to make sure that our students understand how to put together these components to solve problems using the principles of quantum mechanics um, in ways that are practical and doable 
in in not 20 years from now but maybe maybe two to ten years from now yeah because on on IBM's cloud there's a an API to talk to a, a quantum computer now absolutely Tenerife um, is one of the they have multiple actually um, Tenerife is one of the public uh, accessible quantum computing devices it's a functional quantum computer and uh, there are libraries that have been created uh, in conjunction with IBM and made public. Um, we, we, I love Python as a programming language, and, and it, it kind of becomes... Great one to learn. Well, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, you can do almost anything with it. And it runs everywhere. It runs everywhere. Um, it can, it can cross-platforms. It can do scripting. It can do actual application design. And now you can actually build quantum circuits with it directly. And so one of the things that we're working on right now is... Uh, I'm creating a class in quantum machine learning where we're going to actually be training some small neural networks that can function on the, the the qubits that are part of the Tenerife quantum cloud from IBM. Yeah, oh, that's uh, super cool stuff. So, I mean, and for listeners out there, kind of quantum computing is uh, um, my hope. Um, and well, many other folks that will be able to continue the advancements of uh, Moore's law, which um, goes back and, and basically says we were going to be able to double the number of uh, double the computing power kind of every 18 months. It was and this is kind of plotted out on the silicon style traditional computing chip design. And this is, I guess, gone back to the 1960s. Yeah. Gordon Moore. Yeah. yeah. And and with that, um, that's held true um, uh, up until this point. We've doubled the number of transistors on a wafer, I think, every 18 months all the way back. We're running out of physical space to do that now. So, like, if you, you, you look at these chips, um, the latest processor um, architectures in these fab facilities now, they're getting down to four or maybe five or six nanometers um, and and there's not um, much room left until you end up with just atoms there by themselves. Well, you know, space is, is certainly one of the constraints. I think one of the other constraints that we see is power. Yeah. Um, so when you when you are moving current through such small space, then the problem becomes dissipation. Yeah, not a lot left for a heat sink. That's right. And, yeah. and, and so you also end up with quantum effects where you end up with two wires that are supposed to be carrying two separate signals. And unfortunately, the electrons don't obey that down at the quantum level. They tunnel through and electrons magically appear in the other wire, which alters your circuit design. And, yeah. and you know, you get to a, a point where you really no longer, it's more of a random event now instead of a controlled event, which uh, our double E's down at the uh, hardware level really like to control what's happening um, yeah. with our current voltages. But um, yeah, it breaks down at the quantum level as, as the, the, the common phrase is. Um, and so I think the point is that by using the quantum computing um, capabilities, we not only have the ability to increase our performance by, you know, using the principles of quantum mechanics, but one of the dark sides is that it becomes now more possible for us to leverage that that quantum speed up in computation to crack encryption. Yeah, some of our traditional encryption is not going to work very well if you had large-scale, large-qubit quantum computers. Right. Most of the the RSA-based asymmetric encryption, um, the, the public key encryption uh, mechanisms that we use, will theoretically be crackable in, in a time frame that makes it, makes it realistic for a person to be able to, yeah. to bypass the encryption. And so um, we are actually 
we had a presentation by Sandia National Labs who is working full steam ahead on creating a set of algorithms that can be proven, provably quantum proof. So how is it that we can develop these next generation encryption standards that are not going to be subject to the quantum effect of, of being able to be cracked in polynomial time. Yeah, all that elliptical curve stuff I learned and all the RSA stuff I learned is, uh, is going to be uh, about as useful as uh, the assembly language programming that I learned. It's, it's all, it's, it's all going to be washed away. I'm going to have to go back to school again myself. But yeah, um, yeah. The, the, so that for um, folks kind of wondering, the, the fundamental difference with quantum computers is uh, many of the mostly what we have computers to do today is a whole bunch of math still like it, it's do, running equations it's crunching numbers all the time that's what the way computers process everything even from an image recognition machine learning um it's by looking at millions of pictures of cats that the it the computer figures out numerically a way to determine this is a cat in its own computer style brain the quantum computing allows it instead of having to have that machine learning network look at a billion images one at a time um, it, 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 my simpleton way of describing it, the computer could look at all billion images all at once. Um, and by being able to do that, it speeds up the learning times. And if, if you were using this on the encryption side of things, instead of learning to identify cat pictures, instead of testing a, a, a private key to decrypt something one key at a time, I can test all billion keys all at once. And, and if you can test all billion keys all at once, instead of taking a billion in a, in a line where you've got to do them one at a time and it takes a long time that's the way our encryption works today it's just not computationally feasible that feasibility changes the 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 good side benefit of all of this is we spend a lot of electricity powering computers doing math and if we can make that much more efficient so we can use quantum methods to do that math with much less electricity then we can do all sorts of computing things that we haven't been able to do as we were talking, I think a little bit, this was off air as well, um, just about some of uh, back in uh, Jeff's initial research back in the 1990s, um, doing machine learning, you would have one tiny single little with three neurons, you said your, your neural net you were working with they, back then. They were very small. Yeah. And then, and then now today, so uh, give it that example you gave off air of like, you've got one student with what, like a thousand layers and, and thousands of inputs. Oh yeah. I mean, some of our, our networks, the, the deep learning neural networks that we use today are have, you know, a hundred or more layers and each of the input layer could have, you know, a thousand inputs that are being interconnected through. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even 10 years ago, that was not computationally feasible. Yeah. So that's Moore's law getting us from there to here. And then this quantum level will give us yet another big lift going forward. That's absolutely true. The, 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 the opportunity to, to compute using the superposition properties that quantum gives is is one of the big things. The other thing is that it, it also offers the opportunity to do quantum teleportation, where we can use another property of quantum, which is different than what we've been talking about so far, where we have a coherence between these qubits, where they become unnaturally bonded. Um, uh, and I, Einstein was famous of saying spooky action at a distance whenever he, he and his colleagues identified this particular property of quantum. Um, but we're now able to use that correlation, that, that, that coherence between qubits to pass information along, um, not necessarily faster because it still requires a classical channel, 
but in ways where we can use it as an example for a quantum key distribution system where we can create keys across two ends of a channel um, and the channel becomes mathematically provable to not be able to be eavesdropped on yeah. because our, our, it's, it's a process of creating these, these two qubits in a state of coherence called a bell pair. And one qubit goes to one side, the other qubit goes to the other side. But when I examine one qubit, I have information about what the other qubit has. And it's not a function of distance. So I could literally move these across opposite ends of the galaxy and still be able to understand this, this correlation, this, this coherence between these qubits, which is, it creates all kinds of interesting, fun uh, algorithmic challenges and implementation challenges. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's obviously very ripe for a university like UTSA to, uh, to be working in areas uh, involved in this. Yeah, so these are the, the type of things that you can, can come study and learn at UTSA. And I, I appreciate you um, pushing forward um, the curriculum and pushing forward folks into these, these next areas so that um, as the students are coming out, they can bring that knowledge into the workplace. And for, for companies out there, I think it, that, um, and I'm going to speak a little bit, just the way the whole tech hiring ecosystem works for a minute, where um, companies typically try to hire folks with multiple years of experience uh, and make it more challenging for a direct college graduate to to come into a workplace um, you're doing yourself as a, an employer a disservice if you're not hiring folks directly out of, of college um, because they're bringing things like that quantum education into your place of employment um, which while they might not have two years of, of working with your CICD system in a Python world um, they're going to bring in a different set of knowledge and skills that uh, will improve uh, your business over the long run so uh, I think having a mix and a balanced cross-functional team we, we were talking in the first half of the program a little bit of combining different disciplines you also need to have um, folks in a team with a, a interdisciplinary level of experience where you have folks bringing in different education background mindsets into a team and you're going to end up with a higher quality output at the, the end of the day you know Brett you, you, you stated it very very eloquently there's no doubt I the only thing I'd like to add to that is to say that one of the things that I think we are doing um, now that was not done so much in the past is that we are taking a deeper interest in listening to our industry partners and finding out what are the skills that are relevant today and making sure that not only are we teaching the foundational properties that you just that you just outlined but we're also introducing, when it's appropriate, the current level foundation or the current level implementation skills that industry needs its employees to be able to function on day one with. So, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to be both. We're trying to stay up with the times and make sure that we are teaching curriculum that is relevant today. Um, at the same time, we want to make sure that we never get away from the mandate of, of creating a more holistically educated person that's going to probably be able to function um, easier across time, to be able to roll with the next change that comes down the pike, which we all know is going to happen in technology. It's a, it's, it's a matter of time. But I think our students are going to be in a position to be helpful today and also helpful tomorrow. And, and that's at least that's, that's, that's the goal that I have in my teaching and research. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is CyberTalk Radio, and we're talking about the University of Texas San Antonio 8020 Foundation and the launch of their Catalyst Lab graduate level uh, internship program. 
program. Uh, you can listen to this in full on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com or on your favorite podcasting service. It'll go up on Tuesday, July the 23rd. Uh, you can also listen to all of our past episodes uh, on there, including uh, other faculty members from the University of Texas San Antonio who have been on talking about the initiatives they're working on. Uh, one I always uh, like to, to make sure that we get somewhere into the program, uh, Jeff, is uh, for the, the students that are coming into these uh, graduate programs. So if I've got a bachelor's degree, I'm interested in enrolling. How does uh, application process work, uh, enrollment? Like what things is the university looking for in a student and in an application? So it really depends upon what the target area is that the student is interested in. So if the student is interested in continuing as an example, a computer science undergraduate with a master's or even a PhD in computer science, then they go through the standard graduate school application process where they submit their transcripts, they, sub they more than likely will take a graduate records exam uh, examination test like a GRE, uh, but that varies per, per college. Um, and then there is a decision made uh, at the faculty level uh, on the acceptance of the students into the program. Um, most of the programs have stated minimums. So if, if the student has the GPA and the GRE scores, um, the TOEFL scores, whatever, you know, as, as required, then, you know, then it's usually they get into the program and the next thing they need to do is they need to find an advisor. So they probably ought to do their homework and, and research a little bit about the faculty that are present in their area and who's doing research that, that they find interesting and so what would they like to do and focus their research on. Check out uh, more about that on the Open Cloud Institute uh, section of the University of Texas San Antonio website and thank you very much for joining us uh, on the program here today, Jeff. Oh, thank you, Brad. It's been my pleasure today.